Hey everybody, Kyle Klingman here with Track Wrestling. Welcome to a brand new podcast called How Wrestling Built Me. Hopefully you have listened to our other shows on Track Wrestling, namely On the Mat, which I host with Andy Hamilton. But this is a new show. This is a new concept because these are wrestlers that don't necessarily have the best credentials on the mat. It's not about that. It's about how you use the skills of wrestling and translated them into another profession. How did wrestling influence you beyond the mat? These are those stories. Because wrestling, as we all know, develops you in a way that other sports can't. The people interviewed here are highly successful in another endeavor. Could be business, politics, military, entertainment, broadcasting, writing, academics, or even another sport. How Wrestling Built Me explores the universal qualities of wrestling that lasts a lifetime. Now, our first guest, John Harris, happens to have some pretty good credentials on the mat. He was a two-time finalist at the NAIA National Championships. But it's not about that. John Harris had a distinguished career. He's now retired from that. He still serves on numerous boards, but... John Harris has over 40 years of experience in the health management field in both the corporate and private sectors. He is considered a wellness pioneer. Harris was the founder of Harris Health Trends, an entrepreneurial corporation that became one of the top five wellness companies and helped shape the prevention industry into what it is today. His most recent endeavor was he was a partner in Performance PH, which utilizes a variety of people-oriented strategies to help employers improve business performance and serves as the chairman of Hero. A lot of interesting topics we're going to cover, but namely what John Harris did in the sport and how that translated into the rest of his life and how he uses the skills today. Also love this. He's still active, cross-country skis. Bikes, road bike, mountain bike, he can do it all. We get a chance to talk to John Harris on the inaugural edition of How Wrestling Built Me. You're not going to want to miss this. Our first guest for How Wrestling Built Me, John Harris. And we went through your biography and your background at the beginning of the show, but really honored to have you on and really glad you're able to kick things off, John. Great. Thanks, Kyle. I enjoyed doing this. One of the things that is interesting to me when we read your bio is that you are a pioneer in the healthcare industry. And when you say something like that, that means a lot, especially since wrestling is a foundational sport for health and well-being. When you say something like that, how do you define being a pioneer in the healthcare industry? Well, I, I would uh, maybe correct that a little bit to say I'm more of a pioneer in the corporate wellness industry um, in that, you know, if you go back 30, 40 years, companies weren't doing a lot to take care of their own people. And uh, there was a movement really that started in the 70s to try to get companies to be more conscious of trying to help their people take care of themselves, um, both from the physical standpoint as well as the mental standpoint. And we developed, and my wife and I, one of the very first companies um, that was actually entrepreneurial and out there helping companies find better ways to take care of their people. So we were doing a lot of charting of uh, uncharted territory and helping these organizations find better ways to identify the risks that their people had and to modify those risks. And uh, as a result, uh, being one of the early folks in that industry and one of the uh, early entrepreneurial companies in that industry, that was really uh, kind of what gives us pioneer status, I guess, if you will. What did that ultimately do for the employees? Did you get feedback on what that meant to them and how there was a residual effect on long-term health within employees? You know, yes, on uh, many levels. And it, it's kind of interesting because I, I would I would kind of put employees into two categories. There were some that found it intrusive that we were actually trying to help them change their lifestyles because they were you know, sort of happy in a complacent lifestyle, perhaps until they had that first heart attack. But there were others that were very appreciative. And there were various measures that we used that ranged from really looking at the impact on the healthcare costs of the company um, to just the improvement of the health status or reduction of risk 
within the population, within the company. And so uh, as, as these things have evolved, give you, for example, in the early days, unions were anti-wellness. And at some point in time, as their people demanded to be taken better taken care of, they became pro-wellness. And so um, the, the industry evolved over a very long time. And, and I think today it's relatively mainstay. And if there's been some change, it's been that there's even a greater focus on not just physical health, like fitness and eating right, but also mental health, knowing that stress and, you know, so many other factors uh, can significantly impact people. Where did the drive to be part of this come from, John? Well, you know, I, I think being a wrestler, um, I always, you know, knew I needed to take good care of myself, physically eating right and, you know, uh, ma- managing the stress of the sport as you're trying to compete. Um, and so certainly that was part of it. Uh, so I've always been geared a little bit towards the you know, the health side of things. And so when I was uh, an undergraduate student, I had a double major in health education, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, health um, sciences and physical education. And when I went to graduate school in health education, I was looking for a way to apply it. But a lot of it was more community health where you're trying to, you know, solve, uh, you know, problems like uh, mosquitoes in a rural area. And that didn't appeal to me as much as did um, really having impact on individuals, particularly in their employment, where they could uh, not only uh, become better employees and be more successful, um, they could also enjoy uh, better and, you know, more healthy lives outside of the workforce. And so I I think, you know, when the whole wellness industry began to emerge, um, it just seemed like a very perfect fit for me to go there. And so I spent my first eight years working for a major employer that's helping their employees within and then uh, after eight years, decided to start this entrepreneurial effort, uh, which grew over uh, the course of 18 years to about 400 employees um, doing work in all 50 states and uh, three continents, six countries. So um, sizable uh, growth over time. Was this something that you always foresaw that you would have an end game of being incredibly successful in some sort of industry? Was there a point where you envisioned this happening in your life? You know, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I would say that the the yes part is that, you know, with having having been a wrestler and having put so much energy into being successful in that sport, that energy had to go somewhere post wrestling. And so, uh, I I think I always saw myself as just getting better and better and better at something, and you know, more successful at it. Um, I, the part I didn't anticipate was the fact that it would be done entrepreneurially. I, I wasn't one of those people that woke up, uh, you know, from the time I was 12 and wanted to start a company. So in my case, it was really started more out of necessity. Uh, the industry was young. There weren't lots of opportunities. And if you were really going to make a difference, you just had to suddenly become an entrepreneur. Um, probably the most surprising part for me was that I was pretty good at it. But part of the reason I was pretty good at it is I was also really good at surrounding myself with people that could do the things that I really wasn't that good at. Going back and thinking about your upbringing, thinking about yourself in high school or even junior high, was there ever a time where it kind of clicked and you said, I have something different than other people do, whether it's a way that people respond to you, whether it's you were able to do things a little bit different and you were able to navigate waters a little bit different? Did, was there ever a moment where it clicked and you said, I, I have something different than other people? You know, that's a really interesting question on, on many levels. I would start by saying this. I was a slow starter. And and as a result, uh, in fact, I was actually, you know, way before ADD was a thing, um, I was uh, sort of labeled as sort of a, you know, special needs kind of person um, in uh, as, a, as a grade school and even early junior high person. And, you know, while everybody else was uh, exceeding uh, academically, I was too busy, you know, thinking about what I was going to, how I was going to play when I got out of school that day. So literally up through sixth grade, uh, my teachers were all pretty frustrated with me. And I remember a, a report card in sixth grade where a teacher said, this is one of the most persistent guys I've ever, you know, children I've ever worked with. And I remember my parents telling me that, you know, there's something good in that and, um, you know, to kind of keep going. And so, you know, really through junior high and high school, I would say that I didn't 
really see myself as, you know, special in any kind of way. I mean, everything I did took work, you know, be a decent wrestler. I had to work really hard at it, sometimes seemingly harder than the, the next person. And then by the time I got to high school, it was starting to pay off. I'm starting to recognize that there might be something good there. But I would say that it really wasn't until college that I began to really excel in wrestling and I began to, you know, excel in the classroom and I began to get um, considerably, you know, better and people seemed to look up to me and I suddenly began to realize that, you know, maybe there was more in there than I realized. And then that really discontinued in graduate school and, and uh, you know, postgraduate school where I started to realize I was, you know, you know was, um, you know, uh, pretty capable and on, on many fronts and that um, people looked up to me as a leader, um, that I had, you know, a charisma that could get me through difficult situations in a positive way. And so, I like to say, late starter and really just about everything, including wrestling. You know, my best years were in college. So with wrestling, where along your journey did you find the sport and how did you find it? So, you know, I was always a, a rough and tumble kid uh, growing up. Um, and and um, I lived in a neighborhood where I was one of the smaller kids. And even in school, I was one of the smaller kids in the grade. But I was always, uh, you know, never afraid to kind of take on the big guys. And so when I uh, got to seventh grade and found out there was a wrestling program, this was long before there was, you know, bitty wrestling or even many martial arts programs. Uh, I said, wow, this sounds like the thing for me. And, and I jumped in. And it's kind of funny every now and then I think back because I didn't know what I was doing out there. And, and uh, you know, coaches are trying to, you know, move me along and, as it turned out, I had a, a pretty strong year and, you know, won a lot of matches. And, and uh, that was sort of the beginning. And I said, hey, this, this is the right thing for me. And I continued to do that, um, you know, really all along. But I remember there were times where I got frustrated and didn't you know, feel like maybe I was as good as I, you know, wanted to be and that maybe I was just never going to get there. And so there were certainly many times that I, I contemplated, you know, that maybe I'd bitten off more than I could chew. But in the long run, it turned out uh, it all worked out pretty well. So you stuck with it. You got through high school. What was it like in high school competing in wrestling? Did it give you an identity? Was it something that you liked? Was it something you suffered through? What was your relationship with wrestling like as you entered into high school? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, it, it was, it was an interesting relationship. I would say in 10th grade, because my, my high school started in 10th grade, I was you know, just beginning, um, to, to realize, you know, how good, you know, kids could be in the sport. Uh, the, 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 uh, junior high ranks weren't, weren't quite so, um, competitive. And so a good share of 10th grade, I was, uh, wrestling junior varsity and, and was, you know, not sure I'd ever crack the lineup. And then, one day happened where I, I beat the varsity kid, so I, I took over the position, and he quit. Um, and so I had the varsity position the rest of the year. And I, and I took my lumps that year, and then I came back the next year ready to do more, and I had a great year. And so it was really a turning point. So I, I would say that it gave me a renewed confidence. It gave me a, a new appreciation for the sport. Um, you know, I lettered as a, as a sophomore, which was a big deal in, in my school. And yeah, it, it really did give me an identity, particularly a sports identity, which I'd always sought and that was always hard to get as, you know, as a smaller um, person. And so, um, you know, the relationship was good with it. I would say that my senior year, because I probably cut more weight than I should have, uh, it certainly had its moments um, where I, I found it to be a significant hardship as well as a lot of good. Um, but uh, there was a learning in that too, you know, in that, you know, you, you can't cut too much weight and, and uh, train hard and do all the right things. And by the time I got to college, I think I had that much better under control. I'm interested in that moment, though, where you made the varsity wrestler quit. Do you remember at all what that was like psychologically to know that this guy quit the team, I beat him, and now I'm in? Did that boost your confidence at all? Oh, yeah, that definitely boosts your confidence, although it also, um, it, to some extent, makes you question, you know, why it took you long, so long to beat him if he was that fragile, um, that, you know, one loss and he's, you know, out of there. Um, it's kind of funny because his name, the guy, his name, I'll leave nameless, came up not too long ago when a buddy of mine ran into him somewhere. Uh, he was back visiting our hometown and he sent me, a, this other guy sent me a text and said, hey, I ran into this guy and, you know, and 
mentioned that I, you know, you and I still hung out together. And he said, he didn't say much. I said, yeah, here's why. You know, I told him the rest of the story. But I, I still remember to this day how I got him. It was like he shot in. I kind of cow catchered him and threw him on his back. And and uh, I didn't pin him, but I got enough, you know, scored enough points that I, you know, I never let him come back. And so, you know, I, I, I think there was kind of two learnings in it for me. One was it gave me more confidence, although it also thrust me then out of the junior uh, uh, varsity ranks into the varsity ranks where, like I say, I took my lumps for a little while. But it, it also told me that, you know, that I didn't want to be that guy. You know, I want to be the guy that ultimately, no matter how many lumps I took, came back and, you know, got back on it the next day, not the guy that quit and went home. And there's so much to that as we think about where you are right now and why we're interviewing you that it it's hard to make a, a sweeping claim that it was that moment, but you stuck with it. Someone else didn't. And as you said, it might have been a turning point in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, when you look at so many of those out there and particularly in the sport of wrestling and I can, you know, look at you know, a handful of them that I go, wow, that was just a very meaningful moment. And it usually wasn't the big things. It wasn't the, the, you know, the, the, the tournament championships, but it was the guy that you'd, uh, you know, never beaten before. And you finally did. Or yeah, in one case, I can remember even a guy that uh, him and I wrestled five times. He only beat me one out of the five, but they were always close until the last time. And I just, you know, killed them the last time. And I had to really stop and ask myself, what was the difference? And it was really just an, an issue of not wrestling too conservatively and going out there and opening it up. And once I opened it up, I, you know, I scored a lot of points on them. And, and so, yeah, it's always, always interesting how these little learnings come out of just about every corner. And it's not always the, you know, the, the uh, poignant moment of, you know, winning a major tournament. You attend Grand Valley State, you walk on. Was that something you knew you wanted to do? Did you know you wanted to wrestle, or was there a little prodding involved there? Uh, no, I, I knew I wanted to wrestle in college. You know, I, I, I came off of high school making it to state, but not placing. And um, it was a disappointment. I thought, you know, for a while about, you know, whether it really made sense to go on and wrestle in, in college, having had that experience. But I made the visit to Grand Valley and uh, met my future coach, uh, Jim Scott. Uh, Jim was just one of those charismatic guys that, you know, you just, you know, you, the minute you met him, you know, I, I want to go wrestle for this guy and he's going to make a difference. What's kind of funny is my teammates and I, mates and I talk about it today is we saw him as this wise old sage who now we realized was about 28 you know, at the time that, that we were, we were all kind of going to school there. So, but, you know, but he was 28 and married and had, you know, two kids and some of that, that made him, you know, way wiser than us. And, um, and so at any rate, uh, I went up for, you know, a visit and he said, you know, I really can't give you any, any money, but we'd love to have you on the team. I can probably get you some work aid and things like that. And, and uh, so I said, yeah, let's give it a go. And keep in mind, I guess I didn't mention, but I had been a 98 pounder my senior year in high school. So I had some growing to do just to get, you know, to 118. And, um, but I started wrestling in the wrestling room and I just saw myself in, improving in leaps and bounds. And unfortunately that year I had a, over Thanksgiving, had a neck injury that sidelined me for a couple of months. And so I ended up redshirting that year. And, um, and by the next year I'd grown to the point I couldn't make 118. I had to go to 126. And by the next year I couldn't make 126 and I had to go to 134. So back to being a late starter, I was also a late grower and, uh, and ultimately finished out my career at, at 134. Um, but it, being surrounded in the wrestling room by a bunch of, you know, guys that were great wrestlers, um, Grand Valley was a young, sport it had only been founded in 68 and i came there in 72 we had just had our first all-american the year before i came and in the next uh, i guess uh, not only my five years there but the next uh you know uh 10 or 15 after that i think we produced about 100 all-americans and so um, we were an up-and-coming program under coach scott's leadership and uh the guys you know accepted me i accepted them we made ourselves all made ourselves better by working with each other and from that point forward, I just knew that was what I wanted to do, and I wanted to be the best at it. You were a two-time NAIA finalist. You got to the finals of the NAIA championships. You lost both times. A big achievement. You got close, but when you look back on it now, what does it mean to you to not get to the mountaintop, not win those championships? Does it still affect you to this day? It absolutely affects me to this day. It's hardly a day goes by that I don't think about it. 
and it was a major disappointment. And yet, I guess with major disappointments, there's learning too. And, you know, as a result, um, I, I think back and there's a couple things that strike me. One is, you know, would I have been as aggressive in business, even academically in uh, graduate school, um, as I was had I been totally satisfied with the conclusion of my wrestling career? And the answer is probably not, or, you know, certainly maybe not. And so to some extent, that disappointment drove me to achieve in life um, in ways that perhaps I wouldn't have otherwise. And it also gave me the ability to overcome disappointment because life certainly will give you, you know, your share of that. And, uh, you know, much like the guy that uh, quit in high school because of a, a disappointment, um, I just knew I had to persevere. So while um, I would have much rather have one, one of those two years or both for that matter, um, you know, I, I have to back up and say, you know, I think I learned from the experience and I think it probably did shape me to, you know, into who I am today. And uh, as your, uh, you know, your podcast calls for, built me. And um, uh, so, you know, even in disappointment, uh, there's often some good. Let's just go through the irony of what you just said there, because you think about it every day that you weren't an NAIA national champion, and yet you're also saying at the same time that it probably built you into who you are today. It's it's such a strange contrast to think about that, because we hear that narrative occasionally, John, where people will say, I don't know where I'd be without those losses or that disappointment, how I overcame it. So... Is it almost better that you didn't win when we look back at it in hindsight? So it doesn't feel that way. Okay. <laughs> when you think about it every day, you know, you kind of go, you know, I, shoot, I wanted to win those, those matches. And, you know, I think I'm kind of wired for success. So, you know, had I, had I won, you know, I think I probably did some wired that way and I probably would have continued on and, you know, been successful. But, you know, I think you got to put the, the happy face on it, you know, for, for one thing, and you got to accept the fact that it did happen. And, you know, I, I think if there's anything, you know, it taught me no matter how much you prepare, no matter how much strategy you put into it, no matter how hard you work, you know, no matter how much you think through your, you know, what the way you're going to go out there and do it, it doesn't always go your way. So, um, you know, I, I, I still got to look at it as a part of, you know, what built me. Um, and, uh, yet, you know, would I have found a different way to build myself had I won? You know, I'd, I'd like to think I, I would have, but you, you know, you, it didn't happen that way. And the rest of my life did. So, you know, I'm so, so I, I, maybe it's a rationalization at, at the end of the day, but it's a rationalization that seems to have worked in my favor. Take us through those matches. Do you remember what happened and how it went the other wrestlers away? Yeah, yeah, in both cases, I most certainly do, although the second one's a little foggy, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The first time I wrestled a guy that him and I had only wrestled one previous time, and we had tied that time. That was back when you could tie. And so we were very uh, evenly matched. He was short. I was tall. Um, and uh, we uh, went into overtime. And the, probably the most uh, uh, um, crushing part of it was that I was riding him strong, but the refs were, you know, on me to, that I had to start working for a pin. You know, I could, you couldn't just ride. And, and, um, I, that was the only year that, uh, the full Nelson was legal in college wrestling. It had never been before. They had made it legal that year as long as you threw it on the mat from the side. You couldn't be behind the wrestler. And I saw an opportunity to throw it. And as I did, he kicked up a foot and hooked me before I could get outside and my hands touched and I lost the penalty point and that was the difference in the match. And so, you know, that was pretty crushing to think that it was that close. There were so many chances. If I had just wrote him out, I'd have won. Instead, the penalty point cost me. So, so that was, you know, hugely disappointing. The next year, literally in the first period, um, I, uh, and it, I didn't even get taken down, but we just got in a weird, uh, um, you know, scramble, and I hit my head on the mat very hard, and I don't really remember uh, most of the rest of the match. Uh, by today's uh, standards, I probably would have gone through the concussion protocol because I most clearly had a concussion, but I got behind by two, and I came all the way back and actually turned him um, and went ahead by one, um, but had to really kind of go out on a limb to turn him, and he ultimately rolled through and came out and, and rolled, and, and I you know, and trying to stop it rolled onto my own back and actually got pinned with about 10 seconds left. So it was just a 
crazy match. I remember the the ref saying, boy, you guys really gave them their money's worth, which was a small consolation. But uh, it was very foggy. And to this day, uh, you know, people that watch me said this, I didn't wrestle like myself and partly, I'm sure, because of the head injury. So, you know, both years, it was a factor that, you know, wasn't necessarily, well, one case was within my control, but the other one wasn't. And so, you know, I, I, you know, they were both unusual circumstances. And here's what I would tell you. The first guy, if I wrestled him 10 times, my guess, we'd be split five, five. The second guy, I think if I'd have wrestled him 10 times, I think I'd have beaten him eight or nine out of 10. So to, you know, just have him get me on that day was, uh, was disappointing. When you look back at your college career, whether it was academics or wrestling, do you feel like you identified more with the wrestling community than the academic community when you were going to Grand Valley State? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I often joke that I went to Grand Valley to major in wrestling Hmm. um, because basically, you know, the academics were something I had to do to stay eligible, basically. Now, fortunately, I picked, you know, good majors and, you know, and put enough energy into it that I could move on to graduate school, um, which, by the way, was the first time I really excelled academically was in graduate school because then I didn't have wrestling other than coaching. And so I could put my full energy into it. And by then, I think I had grown up on a lot of levels and, you know, mentally matured and, and uh, so it made a difference. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I was... I was on campus for one reason, really, or maybe one major reason with one minor reason, the major reason being the wrestle and being part of a wrestling community. And, uh, in fact, just, uh, uh, next, not next week, the week after I've got 10, uh, of the previous Grand Valley wrestlers coming up here to Northern Michigan to spend a few days with me, including our coach. And so, uh, that's the brotherhood that uh, still exists today. Take us through what happens now or for a period of time when September came around, when March came around. Tell us those feelings that come back when uh, when you got past your wrestling career. Yeah, that's a great question. And I know you asked me that question because you and I have talked about this before. And so for years after wrestling, uh, many years, really pretty much up to present, in sometime, you know, September, October, I would start to get this feeling of uneasiness that I always said, you know, what's wrong with me? Why do I go through this every year? And then I get the same thing in March. And it finally dawned on me at some point in my life that my brain was just wired to be preparing in the fall to start getting down to weight and and uh, start getting really ready for competitive college wrestling season or high school for that matter. Um, and in March, I was preparing for a high school state tournament or a college, you know, national tournament. And um, it's amazing to think our brains get wired to that extent, but I'm absolutely convinced that mine did. And for me, the whole way that finally got me through it was was the recognition of it so that when it started to happen, I could say, you know what, I know I'm feeling like this. And I could just basically put it into perspective and, you know, get on with things. And I got, I've gotten much better over the years of, of dealing with it. But uh, to this day, there's some hard wiring there that uh, just has not gone away and seems to um, continually uh, manifest itself at those times. And, you know, it's kind of funny, even when I go to the national tournament every year with my brother, you know, I get that feeling of uneasiness. And then I remind myself I'm not there to wrestle. I'm in there to, there to enjoy taking it all in and it you know, goes away. But, yeah, it's just, boy, it's, you know, the smell of a mat. You know, just the smell of a mat, I immediately go into, like, defensive posture. It's it's uh, it's pretty amazing how this sport gets in your blood and gives you those cues that uh, you have for the rest of your life. You were an assistant wrestling coach for a year at Toledo, I believe 1977-78 season. Did you ever think that you would carry on in wrestling and make that your profession? You know, I it, the thought had crossed my mind when I, you know, when I coached there. And, uh, or let's say before I coached there, I guess when I was in, in college, uh, particularly not having been a, a, you know, a great college student and not having had that much real interest in it, you know, because wrestling took precedent, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, that probably would be what I had to do in a way. And that, that sounded very interesting to me. And then I got to the University of Toledo and, and, uh, yeah, I decided to go right into graduate school as well as, as be an assistant coach. And I got so enthralled with what I was doing in, in graduate school, and I was like, finally, for the first time, excelling in, in uh, you know, the health education field, and um, just you know was was sucking up all the information I was getting and recognizing you know how cool that whole 
field was. And suddenly, you know, that interest in, in you know, wrestling began to wane a little bit. And I think it was partly that, you know, that I recognized that maybe my true passion was more around helping people and, the, you know, taking better care of themselves and being healthy and, you know, being more well. Um, and part of it was that as an assistant coach, you, you know, you don't have a lot of control over the direction of the team. And, and um, you know, as a result, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I could make as big a contribution. I felt to some extent my better contribution was actually kind of wrestling with the kids that were under my um, responsibility and just helping them get better by wrestling with me and showing them little things and all that. And, and it just started to feel like, you know, the, the, I was being drawn in a different direction. Um, and so I, I ultimately only stayed one year and got more focused. Now there was a, a point 10, 15 years later where I missed it so much. I went back and coached little kids for 12 years, which I love. Um, because you could really take a little kid from knowing nothing to being a pretty proficient wrestler, whereas the college kids, you can only make incrementally better, basically. So I love that. And, and ultimately, when, you know, my kids got out of it, I still coached for, you know, a while, but, uh, there finally came a time where it was time for me to step aside and, uh, and begin to pursue some other things that I wanted to do in my life. Um, and, uh, but I, I still enjoy, you know, watching wrestling, being involved in various ways now from a more administrative perspective. What job or what profession set you up for later success? Was there a job that you said, all right, this is preparing me and this is what's going to get me to the next level? You know, I, I don't know that any single job did. I, you know, I would say that, you know, being uh, one of the senior wrestlers, my, you know, my last year, there's only two, I think, seniors on that team. And, you know, having a lot of guys look up to you was at the start of, you know, developing good leadership skills. You recognize how much their eyes were on you and how much you had to, to be there for them and, and not let them down. And so uh, that was probably the beginning of it. Um, when I went to my first job and worked eight years developing a wellness program for a major corporation, um, you know, you're you're, uh, the wellness guy was not in line to be CEO someday. <laughs> so you were kind of, uh, you know, functioning almost below, below the radar. But what and ultimately happened was I was helping so many people improve their health and, you know, change their lifestyle that suddenly I kind of began to develop a reputation and they looked up to me and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, hung on my every word around, you know, what they need to do to become healthier and more productive and those things. And, you know, that was then certainly a great learning experience and, then starting an entrepreneurial company, you know, if at first it was just my wife and I and a couple of people. And, and, uh, when we, as we grew and grew and grew, you realized that, you know, 400, 400, uh, people and the hungry mouths they fed were all, uh, counting on you to get them to where they needed to go. So that experience just enriches your leadership skills, your understanding of people, your need to be, you know, empathetic, your need to, um, you know, Think of them first because uh, they're really the, the people in the trenches that are getting it done for you. Um, and, you know, right on through till, you know, after I sold the company and went to, uh, you know, with the new company for a while and, you know, recognizing that they need some leadership in certain ways that you could, you know, influence there. And, and even since then, the many boards I serve on, um, you know, there's a great opportunity to not only lead, but to learn more about leadership. So, it wasn't like I went to, uh, you know, uh, Leadership 101. It was really School of Hard Knocks and just being in the trenches and remaining perceptive to the opportunity to continue to grow as an individual. How do you continue to make those connections with people that, as you said, 400 people relying on you to provide a job, feed their families? Is it lonely at the top? How do you make connections with your employees to make sure that it doesn't feel like you're over them and that you're just the big bad boss man? How do you develop relationships so that they're sustainable, but that you can also function as well? Yeah, that's a a great question. You know, the the one thing that I tell people when they ask me about culture is that there's only one thing I can assure you is that there is a, there is a culture in any organization. I can assure you there's a culture. What I can assure you is that who's ever leading that culture is actually intentionally trying to make that culture everything it can be. And so while I think I got better at culture, you know, later in the game and maybe even after I sold the company and started another consulting company, um, culture was always important to me. And, and building a relationship where people didn't feel like subordinates, but they felt like they were empowered to do their job and to do it to the best of their ability within some guardrails that you, know, you had to establish to, 
you know, run a company in a way that was going to be uh, you know, organized and, and productive and consistent in, in what it achieved. And so you know, there, there was a, uh, it, it, it could get lonely at the top from time to time because people didn't always understand the decisions that you had to make, no matter how much you, you know, you, you might explain it or try to help them understand it. They just weren't, you know, walking in your shoes. Probably if I had it to do over again, I'd be more transparent with people about what was going on financially and, and so on so that maybe they would have understood a little bit more. But all in all, I would tell you that our, our top team really gelled together and, and really had a you know, great um, relationship with one another and had each other's backs. And I think there was a camaraderie there that I had only experienced one other time, and that was on wrestling teams. You know, where, you know, that, that you feel like every team member has your back on and off the mat. And, uh, so, so, you know, I, I think we we're able to build that and to create it. And, and to some extent, you know, down into the trenches as well. Uh, maybe not quite as well, but, but, uh, still well. When you, you know, have 400 people spread across, you know, probably 30 for 40 locations, it's hard to have a great relationship with everybody. But to this day, I'm friends with, on Facebook with probably, uh, you know, 20 or 30 of, of our folks. And, um, you know, I think we've continued to have that mutual respect and, uh, and always will. Of course, you can be successful and not participate in wrestling, but you did. And when we think about your success and what you were able to accomplish, how did your participation in wrestling affect your success in business? I, mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's probably just, just multiple um, uh, levels, you know, at which it did it. Uh, you know, you think about the, you know, the tenacity that you develop, you know, to keep going. You think about your ability to have strategy and, and, you know, execute strategy in a wrestling match. You think about the persistence you have to have to get through the tough times and, you know, even the good times, you know, when you got a target on your back and, you know, the, the principles that you develop as a, uh, uh, as a wrestler um, are just, uh, you know, so significant, I think better than any sport. And then even though it's an individual um, sport, that, that team orientation that you have, because it is individual, and, you know, that means it can be pretty lonely if you're not all pulling behind each other and, and, and moving along. And then, you know, ultimately the work ethic that, that you create to be a successful wrestler, those are all things that are they're highly um, applicable in, in business. In fact, to this day, I have people that will say, you know, I was watching you negotiate or I was watching you lead that, you know, stressful meeting. And I thought I was watching a wrestling match because it was like, you know, move, counter, move, move, counter, move, you know, three moves forward. It was, it was just, uh, you know, kind of, kind of poetry. And, and I feel it sometimes. I mean, and, and I love it. I mean, I, I love getting in those kinds of situations where it's dog eat dog and, you know, you're just pulling out every one of those wrestling skills to be successful. And so, yeah, I just, I just think the sport, just, you know, gets right down to your core. I mean, as we talked about a few moments ago, to the point that you start, you know, even having, you know, emotional highs and lows based on the time of year it is, uh, you know, it's just, it's just all there. And, and to me, it, it came from wrestling and, and, uh, I, you know, it's, it, it's, cra- you know, cause it's second only to my family. And I had a great family, great nurturing family, second only to my family. It has been, you know, the absolute largest uh, influence on my life and is, every day. How about the cutting weight part? That's unique to wrestling and that other sports don't really have that element to it. Was there anything about cutting weight and having to suffer a little bit that maybe translated later where you were able to get through some situations? You know, it, it, that, that, that's an interesting question. And, and I, I would say, well, you know, let me back up and say that in high school, my senior year, I cut way too much weight. And, um, I, I literally, uh, um, think it was the wrong thing to do. Um, I think it hurt my performance. Um, I don't think I developed as much as I could have if had I gone up probably even a couple weights. Um, and so, you know, it certainly had a negative impact there that I learned, you know, I didn't want to do going into college. In college, uh, my coach was an exercise physiologist. And so he really got you know, how to do it right. And we'd really get our percentage of body fat down over time. And it was much easier to maintain weight then. We didn't cut as much. And, you know, I, I know I was just able to train so much harder and so much more effectively, but it is a burden that I think impacts you emotionally as much as anything. I, I can remember, you know, just literally, you know, just getting so upset and frustrated in a practice because just things weren't going well. And you'd look at it and you go, now, if I wasn't cutting weight, would I have 
had that kind of reaction? And the answer has been no. It's just one more burden that made it tough. So while I don't know that it you know made me any better in, in business, um, I will tell you this. I mean, hell, I, I had just yesterday, I had a, a, a situation that I went out for a two and a half hour mountain bike ride in 90 degree weather, high humidity at probably the toughest uh, course in, uh, in lower Michigan. And uh, I was struggling in the last hour, I mean, to the point that, you know, most people have been smart enough to just go home before they cause serious damage. And I just wouldn't stop. And it was one of those things that you just did when you were cutting weight. You know, you felt terrible sometimes. And somehow you just kept your body moving. So I almost think it's made me better at being a good sufferer um, in, you know, sports and other sports that I am involved with now um, than, than anything else. I'm not sure that it contributed to the business uh, skill or, you know, or, or uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, attributes, um, other than just the fact, the ability to suffer and get through anything. So, so maybe, maybe the only uh, uh, thing to be analogous, analogous in the business would be that um, I was pretty good at going sleep deprived. Not that I recommend people do that, but um, I could tend to do that really well uh, when we had uh, you know, deadlines to meet or something. So maybe that was a place I carried over the phone. Well, healthy weight cutting is important and just translating what you do, you're in the healthcare industry, or you were part of it at one point, but it's an important topic for wrestling. What's your take on that and, and the proper weight cutting and diet and proper weight management? It's it's a really big topic for wrestling. What are the best ways to make sure you stay on it and that we can keep wrestlers healthy? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, there's been so much research done on it. In fact, my college coach uh, stepped down at one point in time and actually did work with USA Wrestling to try to set better guidelines and, and you know, really, really look at that. And so, you know, I, I think it's hugely important. And, you know, I, I think the basics are pretty similar. I mean, getting the percentage of body fat down to a, you know, reasonable level and not, you know, yo-yoing and, you know, making sure that, you know, it's not all done through dehydration and, and, you know, really, you know, me- measuring people's percentage of body fat to recognize, you know, at what level they can uh, go down to and what, what they should not go down to. I think teamed with the fact that some of the best programs now are advocating less weight law, weight cutting so that they can put more energy into, you know, weight training and, and uh, just heart wrestling hard and, you know, um, practicing more effectively. Um, so that there is truly a happy medium there. Um, and then, of course, eating the right things and, you know, nutritionally uh, making sure that, that it's intact and that you're, you know, following good nutritional principles, all really important. And even then, I think, you know, wrestlers are going to have different um, tolerances and recognizing that one guy might be able to, you know, uh, go, you know, wrestle a little lower than another person could um, is important. But I would also say that there's another factor, and that is that I think we lose good kids to the sport because parents fear that the weight loss thing and and simply say, you know, I'm not letting my kid wrestle because I'm not going to let him do that. And so somehow we need to work hard to address that and recognizing that it's not you know, part and parcel to the sport. I mean, it's an important step. And I think once a wrestler gets into it, the parents begin to grasp a little bit more why some amount is necessary. But um, we've got to address it early. And I think particularly not letting these little kids out there cut weight too early um, is one of those things. We'd love to get them into the sport and get them wrestling and being really successful so that their parents understand the principles as opposed to just say no um, before they learn anything else. You were part of a company that dealt with performance, and when you think of performance, that's what wrestling is all about. What have you learned about human nature that you need to overcome or that is just pretty universal across the board through your experience in this business? Well, you know, I think I think it, everybody wants to perform well, um, or almost everybody wants to perform well. May, may it be as a, you know, a parent, a worker, an athlete, you know, uh, you know, a singer, uh, you know, a musician, um, whatever people have, wherever they have their passion, they want to perform well for the most part. There are exceptions, you know, like anything else, there's a bell-shaped curve of overachievers and underachievers. But if you look at the bell, you know, of the curve, most people want to perform. The problem that they tend to have is not really always being in environments that allow them to perform their best. And so creating an environment in which a person not only, 
wants to do their best, but they're empowered to do their best and can do their best is really the best way to have them be successful. So just as a few examples, you know, if you're a kid who wants to achieve, but you've got parents that are underachievers, it's really hard to break out of that. If you work for a company that just basically goes through the motions and are in what I call functional existence, not at some high level of performance, it's really hard because they won't empower you. You know, they'll put in too many rules. They'll make it hard for you to perform every day. And you'll eventually you just won't want to work there or won't want to perform. So if we could create an environment where people are, envir- are empowered to do their best work, um, where they get the support to do their best work, and they um, are rewarded when they do do their best work, um, that's when we see the, you know, the ultimate performance. I think it's why you see some of these dynasty wrestling programs at the high school and college level. They've been able to create an environment where it's fun, supportive, you've got the tools you need, your voice is listened to, and ultimately you come to practice and to the meets every time wanting to do your absolute best work for your coach, for your teammates, and for yourself. And that, those, it's a cultural thing. When you can create that environment for people, um, that's when they will do their best work. Is that rewarding for you to know that at some level you created that culture that other people can succeed and will succeed under the, the culture that you built? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, as I look back on what, you know, excites me about the two companies that I founded, um, I, I, I sometimes say to myself, you know, we created 400 jobs where there were zero. Um, we created jobs that were exciting in an industry that was very young. The jobs were few and far between. Um, we, yeah, I, I have to this day, people tell me you had me doing things that no other company would have let me do at 23 years of age. And man, did I learn fast. Um, so we created, you know, we, I think we, we expedited the personal development of, uh, of many people. Um, we tried to do our best to create a, a work culture in which they felt empowered and they could go out there and, you know, do great work and be excited about it. As I pointed out to even people that were, for instance, in our call centers, just coaching people with high risk factors by phone, very few humans get to touch 400 people a year and change their life. Um, that's just, uh, uh, it's just highly unusual. And so, yeah, I feel great, you know, about what we've achieved. It, it's been, you know, life fulfilling for me to the point that now I feel like I can relax a little bit and pick my places as to where I put my energy to make the world a better place. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. And, you know, while it was a tough journey at times, um, you know, a lot of long hours and, you know, lots of ups and downs and, you know, all those things. You know, I'd do it all over again tomorrow if I, uh, I you know, if I forget, was given the opportunity. So, um, yeah, a huge amount of satisfaction from that. Was there ever a moment where a success and failure hung in the balance where if it goes one direction, you're done, the business is over, and if it goes in another direction, you're going to succeed? Did you ever have that moment? I probably had a hundred of those really? moments. And yeah, and yet I can't name a single one because I, I wasn't, wouldn't pay attention to it. It was like failing was not an option. Um, and so, you know, if you look back and you look at some of my advisors, some of our people, they'd probably go, do you know how close we were to things, you know, for things falling apart? And I'd go, nope, because I wasn't looking at that side of it. I was only looking forward. And in fact, if there's anything that uh, wrestling taught me, if you don't score looking side to side or backwards, just score looking forward and moving forward. And uh, I just, uh, quite frankly, kind of, you know, I, and it may sound, you know, uh, like I stuck my head in the sand, but there just was no time for fearing the downside. You just had to go for the win. And so, you know, the energy was always put there. And I think it was reassuring to your people who were saying, looking at the you know edge of the cliff and going, oh, man, we're pretty close to the edge. And I just go, nope, we're, we're going forward. And, and we did. So I think there were lots of times when things could have gone either way. And sometimes it was because of our own growth. We, we grow through so fast at times that we outgrew infrastructure. We, you know, let some clients down. And I always told clients, I can't promise you we won't let you down, but I can promise we'll make it right by, uh, you know, ultimately. And we always did. So, yeah, I think there were lots of those times. But, again, that's not when you look down. It's when you look forward and, and uh, you know, go knock it out. How about a time where you just said, hey, I just wish I could be an assistant wrestling coach again or I just – Wish I wasn't the leader. Did you ever have those or did you have a straight line that I've got to do this and I've got to be the leader and this is where I want to be? No, I think you always have those, um, you know, those moments, you know, where, 
you watch your friends, you know, going out for a drink or something after work and you're going, I got five proposals to read and I'll be up till midnight as it is, can't go. There, there are certainly lots of times that you want to be a private citizen. And I will say that ultimately that is, it's what, why I sold the business. Um, you know, the right opportunity came along to sell the business. I felt it had the right opportunity to create legacy. Um, I thought we, all our hard work would continue to be uh, creative and, you know, driving a new company forward. Um, and I'd gotten the point in my fifties that it was really just time that I didn't, you know, run from thing to thing to thing, you know, 16 hours a day. And now having said that, I will also tell you that I also made sure that I never missed one of my kids, um, you know, uh, uh, sporting events or any other major event in their life, even if it took, you know, midnight plane travel to get back for it. So, so I did my best to balance family and, and work and all those things. And and sometimes when I, you know, say I'm not sure I did a great job of it, my family is the first to defend me um, that I, in fact, did do a good job of it. And so, so I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't get to that point, but there was coming a time in my fifties where I felt like ultimately I, I would feel like I missed out on some things in life if I didn't kind of find an exit strategy. So um, selling the company, working with the other company for a while, and then founding the, the smaller consulting firm that you know I could still have a life um, was huge. Now we sold the consulting firm last fall, um, and so now I'm I'm uh, basically retired, except I'm on five boards and working on two or three other little private projects of different sorts. So my my day still stays still still stays uh, you know plenty busy. Um, but uh, but but I, I definitely there was a time where I needed my life back. And, and I'm really glad I did it because I've just been able to do so many other fulfilling things now that if I were still just driven on making that business move forward, I, I wouldn't have done. So, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And I think I put my good, you know, 18, 20 years into that place. And then there was a time to move to a new place. What is your definition of success, John? You know, I, I think my definition of success is, is just making a difference in the world. If you can, if you can leave this world a better place than the way you found it, um, I think that's that's success enough. And if you can do it, you know, on a large scale, um, it's even better. Um, you know, if, if a person is only capable, uh, you know, I think of friends who really their capabilities are fairly limited, but they can influence a few in a very positive way. That's success for them. I just happen to be lucky enough to have the wherewithal and the the vision and and the the, um, I guess, support um, to go out and change the world in some big ways, uh, but, you know, both previously and to some extent now through board and work and special project work I do. Um, and so it, it, to me, it, it really is about changing the world, um, not not just because you threw some money at it or you, you did some nice things, but because you strategically set out to, to have impact and then executed upon that impact. That That's, that's success you've had financial success. How does that change the relationship other people have with you? Do you find that you have to be a little bit leery about people, that you have to really weed out who your friends are and, and who the people are that just want you because you might have some financial success? How do you balance that, John? You know, it's interesting you ask that because I really have not experienced that. And maybe it's a little bit because I, you know, I've, I've always been a pretty humble and, um, just normal kind of guy that uh, that a lot of people probably don't even perceive, you know, that I've amassed what I have, and um, so so maybe I, I fly under the radar just a little bit. But you know, I've still got the same old friends I always had. Um, you know, there are certainly people that know that my wife and I've done very well, and that you know do come to us with requests. But it's always respectfully, and it's often you know a good match for where our passions are and where we want to put money to make more impact in the world. So I, you know, I haven't had a need to be guarded, and and in the few events that I have, um, it's as easy as saying no, and, and you know, maybe explaining why no doesn't fit. Um, you know, a lot of times I've found that you know my wife and I have some very specific giving strategies, um, and we'll do small stuff for other things, but largely we stay focused on you know three to four causes, and and um, those causes are important to us, and so if it's outside that realm, and you know, it's a big ask. The answer you know might very well be no. Um, and so, you know, I, I think even with that, you get a little strategic about it and then it's easy to tell people no, um, if, if it's not a fit, but, but I, you know, I haven't really felt like I've had, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, piranhas you know, yeah. <laughs> coming after us in any kind of way. Um, and again, I think that's partly because, you know, we fly under the radar screen a little bit 
that we remain humble. You mentioned mountain biking, road biking, Nordic skiing. You do a lot of outdoor activities. How does that fill a void that maybe wrestling had at one point in your life? How has that been a, a good fit for you and, and what you need to do in your life after working? You know, I think it's, um, and, and well, so I, so I started, you know, I've been really doing it all my life, but just on a smaller scale when I was, um, you know, so involved with the business. And then after selling the business, I was able to get, or yeah, really after selling it, able to get back in in a, in a big kind of way, you know, training many more hours uh, for, you know, many more major events. And so I, I think it felt, feels uh, filled a couple of voids. One is I, I love the fitness, level of fitness in wrestling. I just love being, you know, fitter than most people on the planet, you know, both muscularly and cardiovascularly and anaerobically. And so by, by having that, it, it really is part of my identity. It, you know, I, I, I know that I'm probably in the top 1% of fitness for, you know, people in my age group uh, on the planet. And, and so there's just something that's really rewarding about that to me. From a competitive standpoint, um, I, I love the, the competitive part of it. And I'm not nearly as good at any of those sports as I was as a wrestler. But um, to me, that's not as important as just um, operating at my best. I mean, at age 65, I'm still getting PRs and certain kinds of mountain bike races. Yesterday on the course I rode, I got up one steep, you know, rooty uh, climb um, that I had literally never gotten up uh, until one time earlier this year that was a lucky, I think, try. Yesterday, after some more work on a certain technique, I got up at twice the second time bone tired. That's really rewarding to me. And so I think that that athletic accomplishment that I got in wrestling, albeit, you know, wanting to, you know, win a national championship, as opposed to just simply wanting to place in the middle of my, you know, uh, age group in the top 50% of the overall field, you know, the, the target's just a little different. And so I think it, it gives me the opportunity to do that. And then the final thing, and I kind of alluded to it with the training I did for the climb yesterday, and it's the same with Nordic skiing. I love the technique practice. I love figuring out how to get better at what you do so you're more efficient. And you know, particularly Nordic skiing has a huge technical component. And so just like learning more moves in wrestling or learning them to, to do them from the other side and, you know, just learning to execute them perfectly, um, you can do the same on a mountain bike and on Nordic skis. And so that fills a void, uh, you know, a learning void that, um, you know, that, that I had with wrestling and uh, that I missed. And as you mentioned earlier, just some of the, the suffering components, even when you're hungry and tired, Boy, there has to be a connection between what you do on a bike or on Nordic skiing and wrestling and just that mental component there. Uh, there there's no question. And, you know, it's, uh, I've actually done some physiological testing where they put you on a, you know, a road bike on a um, trainer to your stationary and they hook you up to all the gas analysis stuff on your face. And, and uh, so you're trying to breathe through that and they put you through this series, you know, and at the end you're going as hard as you can for, you know, some length of time. And what they always remark when I've had those tests is, man, you're one of the best sufferers we've ever had. And basically what they're saying is that theoretically my body should have shut down, you know, two minutes before it actually did. Um, and I just somehow found a way through it. And I think, you know, rest, the grueling wrestling practices, in fact, I was just telling some of our family, uh, reminding them that the way I ended every practice at Grand Valley was with a partner. And even though the rest of the team had gone home, we would go to this set of three stories of stairs and we'd run up um, um, 10 times hitting every other step, five times hitting every step. And then we'd carry each other up five times, you know, <laughs> every other guy. And, it, you know, what did it help our fitness? Well, I'm not sure it did looking back now, but it sure as heck made us mentally tough. And so I, I think between the weight, you know, the, the weight, uh, uh, loss and you know and applying you know all the stuff you had to deal with to get through practices when you weren't feeling your best from the weight loss all those things just the suffering and wrestling it just made me a great sufferer and uh i don't know uh, that i want that written on my tombstone but it's it's uh, certainly makes me feel good yeah. when i'm watching guys drop like flies and i'm still somehow going are people surprised when they find out that you wrestled yeah, they are very often. Um, you know, I, I wear it on my sleeve enough that probably a lot of people know it. But um, when I when I meet somebody, uh, you know, new that, that didn't know it or I've been known for a while and they never knew I wrestled, they are always surprised. And I think they're surprised on several levels. 
One is I think they picture wrestle wrestlers as, you know, short and bulky. And I was always a taller, thinner um, wrestler. So I, I think I don't, you know, look like a wrestler in their mind. In fact, I had a professor in, in the graduate school say, I thought you were like a tennis player. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so I think that's part of it. I think my demeanor, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm not, I don't come across as, you know, highly aggressive or anything like that, although I'm, you know, intense and, and uh, passionate about what I do, but I don't think they, you know, they don't, I don't, I think they view wrestlers, a lot of people think wrestlers are just kind of like hard nosed constantly and I'm not that kind of guy. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's part of it. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that, um, a lot of people see wrestling as maybe more of a combat sport, almost like boxing or something or MMA. And, and I still, they don't, I don't strike them as, you know, an MMA guy or something. So it is funny. I mean, people say that, yeah, they, they wouldn't have perceived me as being a, a wrestler. Well, you are a wrestler. It built you. And what a great way to kick off our first edition of How Wrestling Built Me. Fascinating conversation, John. Thanks for sharing your story with us. And hopefully in another 65 years, we have more stories to tell and you can uh, share them with us another 65 years. (laughs) Hey, I'll I'll take 35. 35. We'll do it. And and then we can talk about how how your health care brought you to that point. Excellent. Well, hey, I appreciate being your guest, and uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. I want to thank John Harris for kicking that off for us. It was our first edition of How Wrestling Built Me. appreciate the time from John and the insight. And that's what this show is going to be all about, the insight and the way that wrestling connects to every part of your life. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Kyle Klingman. You have been listening to How Wrestling Built Me on Track Wrestling.